Hi, I'm here with Carrie McDonald. Um, Carrie is a senior education fellow at FEE, the Foundation for Economic Education. Uh, she is also the author of Unschooled, Raising Curious, Well-Educated Children Outside the Conventional Classroom. Um, she's written tons of articles. She's an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. She contributes to Forbes regularly. She was in the news recently when... Um, Harvard came out um, against homeschooling, and Carrie fought back, and that's probably a battle that's going to that's continue. Um, she's been very outspoken about homeschooling over the years and has a lot to say about, about that. Um, welcome to the show. Oh, it's great to be here, Brittany. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, thanks for coming. Um, so what I most wanted to ask you about today was this whole, um, this whole new normal that's being pushed specifically on kids. You know, when we look at the CDC recommendations for what classrooms should look like going forward and some of the, you know, there's this uh, news footage of somebody visiting a, a school where the classroom has been sort of divided up with these little plastic barriers and things and we've seen crazy pictures of kids being separated in the playground. And it's, it's to, to me, and I think to a lot of people, that's just dystopian and also psychologically damaging. You know, when you think about what that kind of, of childhood is going to do to people growing up, I mean, that, that it's, to me, it's horrific. So um, I'm, what I'm wondering is as homeschoolers, how do we counter that? How do we come up with ways for our kids to have normal interactions with other kids, normal, um, you know, old normal ways of being with other kids, of playing, of being in nature, of being around other kids, and just doing all the things that kids need to do, given, you know, not only all of this stuff coming down from the CDC, but just the fear, just the fact that maybe even homeschooling families are afraid of having their kids, you know, interacting with other kids, what can we do to create that or, or, you know, retain that old normal for our kids? Right. Well, there is so much there to talk about. I think first is to really address the reality of what back to school would look like when school buildings reopen, and then to get to more of the meat of your question, which is what are some of the solutions for families? And I think, you know, you're right. A couple of weeks ago, uh, the CDC came out with their recommended guidelines for reopening schools. And, you know, I think parents here in the U.S., we had gotten glimpses a little bit of schools in Europe and in Asia reopening post or among amidst the pandemic, but as the peak had subsided. And some of the images, the Washington Post had a photo gallery, for example, were startling. I mean, seeing kids wearing masks, little kids wearing masks all day or face shields and then having, um, you know, sort of circles on the playground separated six feet apart from everybody and everyone could stay in their circle or kids in hula hoops playing in their hula hoops, but it's spaced <laughs> yeah. appropriately on the pavement. And so we were starting to get glimpses. But then and I think when the CDC came down with their guidelines, uh, things started to get real. And the guidelines vary, but essentially talk about, you know, masks for children over two, as well as for staff members. Um, social distancing, desks six feet apart, 
uh, smaller cohorts. So you stay with one teacher and a small group of kids all the time, staggered schedules, um, drop off and pick up, for example, or even staggered like part-time schedules where one cohort in the school might go Monday, Wednesday, and Friday one week, and another cohort goes Tuesday and Thursday, and then they swap the following week and so on. Um, No outside visitors, including limiting parents in school buildings, um, eliminating cafeteria time and having children eat in their their classrooms, eliminating recess, eliminating gym time. So any of sort of the accessories to schooling that sometimes children find appealing, uh, you know, would be diminished. Yeah. And um, you know, we've all, you know, there were some, there was some talk, oh, these are just guidelines, don't make a big deal about it. But very quickly, you started to see major school districts across the country really thinking about how they were going to implement this. In mm-hmm. fact, Florida's Miami-Dade County Public Schools, um, you know, putting forth guidelines that look very much like what the CDC is suggesting. And I think for a lot of parents, that is just, like you said, disturbing, Um you know, NPR had an interview uh, uh, several weeks ago where there was a uh, an expert who said that they that this whole experience of the COVID pandemic this spring would be an adverse childhood experience for every American child. This is what mm. this particular psychologist said. And, you know, I think that's arguable. Certainly for some kids, it would be traumatic. I think for others, you know, being home with their families is not terribly traumatic. And maybe they're getting a break from any of uh, the bullying or trauma that might have otherwise happened in schools. But what I think could be an adverse childhood experience for many children would be going back to schools with these kinds of strict social distancing requirements. Um, And so I think you're right that many parents are, are... saying, you know, no, I don't want my kids to go back to this. We saw this first in some European countries, in the UK and in Denmark. Some of the first, Denmark had the first, some of the first European schools to open. And thousands of parents did not send their children back to school. Some of that was probably related to lingering fears about the virus, uh, potentially children living with vulnerable populations like grandparents. Um, but I think some of it is definitely attributable to concerns about this newfound school environment. Mm-hmm. And we're finding similar um, feedback here from parents in the U.S. Uh, a recent USA Today poll, for example, found that um, that parents, uh, most parents, more than half of the parents surveyed in this particular poll said they were more likely or somewhat more likely to choose homeschooling even if schools open this fall. And that's just a startling number of families. And And I have to think so much of that is related to uh, seeing what school might be like and saying, you know, we're just gonna, we're just gonna wait it out a little bit and, and until things get back to normal. So I do think that it might be kind of temporary homeschooling, short-term homeschooling until schools can return to normal at some point. Um, but nevertheless, I think families are looking for other alternatives. And just anecdotally, you know, I've been talking with neighbors uh, around me. I'm in um, Boston, Massachusetts, and first talked to a set of neighbors who have younger children and they said, you know, we're not going to send them back to preschool uh, just because we don't want them, you know, in this kind of socially distanced environment when they're two years old. 
Um, and they said, you know, we're all home. Um, they had professional jobs working from home and, and said, you know, we're going to just kind of, uh, take a a tag team approach with some other neighbors and have a kind of preschool co-op. And then later, several days later, I was talking with another neighbor who with an older child, but it's kind of middle school age. And they were saying the same thing. And these were people who never would have really considered homeschooling, never, um, you know, really interested in kind of alternatives, but said the same thing, like, oh, you know, there's a few of us and we're just not interested in having our kid go back. And homeschooling is actually not that terrible right now. (laughs) My kids are doing fine, learning a lot. And so like Monday, one of the parent, you know, one parent will take the kids and Tuesday, another parent will take the kids and they'll just make it work. And I think it will be these organic, um, you know, neighborhood-based micro schools or co-ops or mm-hmm. other uh, kind of intimate environments where you're with people, you're kind of a self-selected group, you're with people who you trust, who yeah. you share the same kind of, um, you know, maybe uh, risk tolerance and yeah. Uh, and I think make it work that way. So that in that way, I think it's really interesting to see, you know, how adaptable um, parents and neighborhoods will be to this kind of newfound reality. Yeah, well, it'll also be interesting to see how many, let, let's say that um, schools do go back to the old normal at some point, you know, how many families are going to say, you know what, this is actually working out better for us. And um, no, thanks. We, you know, we're not we're not interested in, in sending our kids back to school. Right. And there's a lot of other data coming out to suggest that. So um, about a month ago, Ed Choice came out with a survey where they found that the parents they surveyed about all kinds, all kinds of different topics related to the pandemic, um, more than half of those parents had a more favorable view of homeschooling as a result of the pandemic than they wow. had before. And of course, no wonder Harvard's us- worried. Right. Well, and those of us who homeschool would say, of course, this is nothing like authentic (laughs) homeschooling. I mean, we're all disconnected from our communities. Um, But even given that, the fact that that so many parents have a more favorable view of homeschooling and what is, uh, you know, very much an artificial homeschooling experience is a good sign that at least it's not completely intolerable. And in fact, maybe they are seeing that their children are calmer and happier and more curious and more interested in learning. And, and that kind of um, reaction could lead more of these families to consider homeschooling, um, whether it again is just in the short term until things kind of calm down or, mm-hmm. or perhaps long term. I think for a lot of families who may have been interesting and interested in homeschooling for a while, but kind of lacked that momentum to give yeah. it a try. Yeah. This spring has been a good chance to do that. And some of them might say, you know, there's no reason for us to go back. Yeah. What is your sense going forward? Do you feel like um, this, this, these new standards, this new normal is going to fade away? Do you feel like we will get to a point where even in the public schools, they will go back to how they were in the past? You know, I think uh, it's hard to say because we just really don't know how long a lot of these um, social distance requirements and customs will linger, right? I think that's the big unknown. I think um, 
certainly families have a much more openness to alternatives to school. And they, from perhaps for the first time, have been able to somewhat see that you can distance education from schooling. Um, and in, in most cases, of course, what children have been doing this spring is just public school at home or right. a computer. Right. Um, but still, it's a different kind of learning. And I think it's at least um, introduced the idea that there could be different education models. So I would be surprised if we don't see an uptick in homeschooling numbers uh, over the long term. Mm-hmm. I would also be surprised if we don't see an uptick in um, virtual schooling as a lot of the kind of mystery around online learning has subsided, not only right. for young people who, of course, I think are more, more um, you know, more comfortable with technology, but particularly for those of us who are grownups who may have had less exposure to what it's like to, to learn and work re- remotely over uh, technology. And so that, I think, we'll, we'll see more of that. Um, yeah, and and then and then maybe some of these other kinds of models like micro schools or hybrid homeschooling models, where you know young people might attend a learning center or co-op a couple of days a week, or perhaps in some cases up to full time, but they're registered as homeschoolers, allowing them to retain that freedom and flexibility um, mm-hmm. of homeschooling. Mm-hmm. Do you have a sense in in um, either your homeschooling community or sort of the wider nationwide homeschooling community um, of to what extent homeschooling families or maybe it's maybe there's a division, but are they sort of widely buying into the fear of COVID nineteen? So even even though they're not in classroom situations, is there still a lot of the social distancing going on and you know wearing masks and, and isolating kids from each other? Is that happening much where you are or or that you're hearing about among homeschooling families? You know, it's really hard to say. I I wouldn't be able to tell, um, you know, just based on my personal experience or what I'm seeing on, you know, social media and so on. I think what what I found and probably what is true for a lot of folks is for the past couple of months, we've re- we've all really stayed close to home. You know, we've yeah. really followed these stay-at-home orders. Um, and maybe, you know, quarantined with a neighbor, for example, if we felt like we could um, have, again, that kind of trust that we were all sort of taking precautions. So I think there was some of that, but I think it's been more neighborhood-based, not necessarily homeschool-based or school-based. Um, I think it's much more about proximity than type of education. Yeah. That, I think, will change, though, as as the lockdowns subside and as the stay-at-home advisories weaken, I think we'll see more branching out. And um, that's where it will be interesting. You know, will families kind of flock back to their, to their homeschool or their school groups, or will it be more of what I'm seeing here is, we're, you know, you're kind of banding together and you're in your local neighborhoods, in your local communities, um, to have a much more, um, you know, kind of personalized experience, a local, you know, learning experience than I think we would have otherwise had. Yeah, yeah. And then um, just about the, you know, the whole, the stuff that we're, that we're trying to get away from, that I feel like I'm trying to get away from um, as becoming the new norm, um, you know, this, this, Keeping, keeping kids distant from each other and separate and sort of instilling this idea that 
other people are to be feared, even other children are to be feared. Um, what are ways mm. that you see to sort of, if, if that's, if that's kind of more of a prevailing view in society, if, if the people around you are adopting that view, that attitude, what can we do as homeschoolers to counter that? Mm. It's such a good question. I, I thought of this the other day myself too. I mean, I think certainly early on, you know, back in March when um, all of this began really in earnest in the U.S., um, we didn't really know what was coming, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think all of us really took the, these precautions seriously and we had a real heightened sense of concern. Um, and I think though now as we start to open up again and have more data around the real threat, I think it becomes more clear, you know, how we can respond and, and maybe take a closer look at a kind of our own reactions. And so I, I even found um, you know, the other day my daughter came in the house and I said, oh, make sure you wash your hands right away, you know, <laughs> and I, which I've been, of course, focused on for the, you know, yeah. very, very much. And, and then I realized, you know, I don't want her to have this fear <laughs> about leaving right. the house and doing things. And right. so then the next time I said, oh, okay, you know, can you take off your coat and then, you know, make sure you wash your hands, that kind of thing. I think it's, it's just really, um, ourselves looking at, you know, checking our own reactions to this and mm-hmm. perhaps being a la- less alarmist around what's happening and, and not so, um, you know, making sure even just our tone is, is not so uh, fearful because really um, we do have so much more information and we want our children to get back out in the world, just like all of us want to get back out into the world and we'll do it safely and we'll do it um, with, you know, a lot of thought, but we won't, um, I think it's important not to kind of be adding to any kind of fear, particularly when we do have so much more information now. Right. Right. Um, yeah. And it just seems to me that, you know, the, and again, you know, I've, I have a daughter with special needs and so I'm also seeing things in the special needs groups about, you know, how to get your child with autism comfortable wearing a mask. And I just want to scream because now, you know, now it looks like not only, does it apparently, you know, look like it, it's not a bad idea to, to expose kids generally, you know, unless, unless they have an autoimmune disease or, you know, in, or in some way more sensitive, but the masks themselves can cause problems. And exactly. especially yeah. if you have a child who can't communicate, you know, if they're having difficulty breathing or something, I mean, just let alone, you know, a child who might be frightened by having this thing that they can't understand why this is being put on their, I mean, the whole, that to me is just so enraging and horrifying. And I, I just want to scream. I just want to see that, that kind of thing. Um, but, um, you know, right. And I think, and, and sort of related to that, I think that's where it goes back to finding a cohort that you feel comfortable with and that you kind of share the same, worldview and the same perspective on this. Um, and it can be tricky to kind of feel, feel around and find that group that well, that's you know, just has it. the it's, same it's, comfort level. Yeah, yeah. And it's tough because I've wanted, so we've had a, a couple of things that I would like, that I think would be great group activities. There's one, there's this farm out here that does historical reenactments and they do reenactments of like the civil war and revolutionary war and revolutionary era. Um, and, they have been very clear about, you know, come on down and wear masks if you want to, don't if you don't want to, you know, we just want to, we're staying open. And they've been, 
I really want to support them. And I also think it would be a great opportunity to get our son together with some of his other friends. But I'm nervous about approaching the other parents because I don't know what their feelings are about, you know, maybe, maybe they are very much afraid, you know, maybe they haven't read the studies that I've read, um, either about COVID-19 or about the masks or about social distancing and all that stuff. And I can't assume that they have the same, you know, viewpoint on it that I do. And I'm, I'm nervous about alienating people. So mm. I feel like the whole thing has also really put a chilling effect on relationships between mm-hmm. families because I think that's right. Yeah. And that's, that in itself is disturbing. Um, right. Right. So. Right. I think that's such a good point. Um, and, and no, no easy answers. I mean, it's great yeah. that this particular organization you're mentioning is allowing that decision about mask wearing to be left up to individual visitors to yeah. decide what is best for them. In some places, though, um, you know, businesses are being required to, right. uh, by law, to make right. sure that everybody, not only all their staff, but also their, uh, any visitors or any customers are wearing masks. Um, so it's one thing when it's individual organizations and businesses coming up with their own policies and expectations. It's another when it's, um, you know, the government deciding what is appropriate and what's not. And that can be tricky. Uh, you know, I mean, some, in some case, you know, some ways I'd suggest, um, thinking about how we can entertain in our homes, right? Because then Mm -hmm. we can set our own kind of parameters and put out an email or a message to a group and say, Hey, we'd love to have you come over just so you know, we don't wear masks. Um, Mm -hmm. If you want to wear a mask, feel free to do that. But in our house or in our yard, that's not what we're going to be doing. Or, and then the same thing for maybe an organization like you're, you're mentioning is um, I'd really love to do this just so you know, my children will not be wearing masks, but please feel free to, you know, wear a mask if that's important yeah. to you. And I, and I, but I think you're right. Either way you do it, it can create these kinds of strained relationships. Right. Right. And that's it. To me, it, it, the whole thing just reminds me so much of the cultural revolution in China where it's these, you know, the whole population being told who the enemy is. You know, there's this group that's the enemy and we've got to, um, wrap them out. We've got to, you know, tattle on them and shame them and all this stuff. And, you know, knowing where that goes, where that ends up and just the, the degree to which that tears apart the fabric of society, the trust between people. Mm -hmm. I don't think, I don't think the people who, I don't think very many Americans are, are really sort of aware of, of that. Um, Right. Of what, or what's at stake. Right. And I, and I think it not only um, threatens trust, but it really um, minimizes dissent. And I think in, in some way, and it's, of course, it's related, but I think in some, in some ways, the um, weakening dissent or not tolerating dissent or anybody kind of questioning the dominant narrative yeah. Yeah, that is problematic because again, <laughs> this is a brand new virus, and we're all kind of learning about it. And and it, we should have all kinds of different I- ideas and viewpoints um, that we should be able to share openly and and figure out what ones make sense and what ones don't. Um, so that is really worrisome when we shut down those differences of opinion. Yeah, yeah, no, it's to me that's one of that's one of the sort of 
biggest impacts that this has had is just the way this chilling effect on society, on what you can say, what you can't say, and, um, you know, having to look over your shoulder for, you know, is your neighbor going to turn you in and that, that kind of thing. I just, I, I just wonder if the people participating in that really understand the damage that they're doing by doing that. And then, so again, getting back to, you know, being parents, what, what do you do in a, in a situation like that where, you know, some of the sort of the foundations of how we relate to each other, how we relate to other families and, you know, people outside of our own family um, are really under assault, I would say. What do you say to your kids about that? And how do you, how do you sort of um, help your kids to navigate that aspect of things? Well, I mean, I think again, in some ways it's a, it's a bit of a dance to try to figure out where people are in terms of their comfort level with getting together and, you know, what are, are they okay with a socially distant play date outside um, with masks, without masks, inside with masks, without masks. And I think yeah. we're all just trying to figure out what makes sense. And so kind of starting small, um, yeah. works out. I mean, for, you know, for example, for my, my older daughter, who's a teenager in a, in a lot of ways, this is being driven by her because she's just been desperate to, to get back together with her friends and yeah. very good friends. And I think they've kind of worked it out and we're able to, um, you know, then loop in the parents and say, hey, we're going to get together and we're going to sit on the porch six feet apart, you know, no mask, but, and it worked out okay. And then another friend, you know, wanted masks. And so I think some of it's just, you know, being, um, being respectful of the different risk tolerances. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And, but then also, you know, not being afraid to say, well, here, you know, look, we don't mind not wearing masks. You know, this is where we stand. Um, but right. we are flexible because it's important that, you know, my child see your child. So let me know what yeah. works for you. And I think some of it's just a little bit of that, um, that navigating to figure yeah. out you yeah. know, what makes sense and, and what, how everybody, uh, you know, feels about it. And hopefully this is not, you know, hopefully we'll kind of get to some more understanding sooner than later and this won't go on for, right. for a long time. Right. I'm, I'm hoping so. So are there, are there specific things that you can recommend as far as, or that you've been thinking about? I mean, you mentioned like um, micro schools and hybrid homeschooling, that sort of thing. Are there, are there things already happening where kids like the, let's just, for example, the playground experience at school, is there a way of replicating that? Um, or is that happening? Are you seeing are you seeing families sort of trying to replicate that those specific things, not not just the learning, but the the fun rough and tumble stuff? Is that coming back outside of the schools? I hope so. I mean, here in Boston, our playgrounds are still closed. They're they're supposed to be opening next week, and so then we'll see. Uh-huh. But I do think as different areas open up, and now it's summertime, and there's going to be, you know, more opportunities to get outside. I think general comfort level is um, higher outside. So Mm -hmm. people feel um, more comfortable getting together, potentially outside. I think we'll see more of that. And then I think, uh, you know, hopefully as people gather, you know, again, in small groups and perhaps socially distanced, um, 
as that becomes more familiar again and, and, you know, hope, hopefully there's no resurgence of, of the virus, then it might lead to more of those kinds of interactions or broadening beyond kind of those key people that you've identified. So I hope so. And I think, um, you know, you were right to mention this organization near you. I think nature centers and parks and playgrounds, um, those will be, you know, key spots for families to gather um, to really enable their kids to have the, this connection again. I mean, mm-hmm. whether it's school or homeschool and, 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 you know, my colleague, John Miltimore at Fee wrote a great article yesterday about, about kind of the low risks to children of COVID and, um, and how reopening schools in European countries in particular in Denmark has oh, not yeah, led Denmark to story. any, was, yeah. has not led to any resurgence of, um, yeah. of the virus and it seems that children are less infectious even if they uh, are right. exposed that 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 is all encouraging um and you know his point in this particular article was that you know regardless of if you're sending kids back to school or you're doing homeschooling or something else um that it's okay for kids to gather like that that is right. such an important part of right. the development it's certainly important to all of us right now we've been so disconnected from yeah. community and from other people um but especially important for our children. And so I think this is gets back to what we kind of talked about earlier is we have to put our own fears or anxieties a little bit behind us. We have to, you know, make sure that they're based on kind of rational uh, interpretation of the risk as opposed to kind of irrational fears Mm -hmm. and not projecting that onto our children, but really acknowledging that it's, it's really important, particularly as we head into these warmer months for our kids to be gathering and being outside with friends. Yeah, yeah. So when you talk about a rational interpretation of the risk, um, I, I, agree, I totally agree with that. And I feel like that's something people can do and probably will do as individuals. But just my experience with the state and with the history of how, how governments use fear to sort of ramp up their own power and ramp up their own ramp up controls, mm. my cynical side is looking at the institutional part of this and saying, you know what, it doesn't matter what the, what the reasoned arguments are for kids being together and congregating and, you know, not having any of this and not having masks and all that. It doesn't, it doesn't matter what the rational objections are to that. It's already in place and it's, you know, to expect public schools especially to sort of re- to, to loosen up on something mm. they've, they've put in place. I feel like that's not going to happen or it's, or it's not going to happen for a long time. Um, so I, I don't know. I just, I hope mm. I'm wrong about that. I hope that I hope I'm being overly cynical, but I also feel like this is, this is in place now. And so parents are going to be, you know, faced with this choice of either sending their kids into this dystopian nightmare or coming up with something on their own. Um, Right. I think that's right. I mean, I, and I think, you know, even though districts are, for example, even the Miami-Dade County public schools in Florida said that they were, you know, trying to welcome parental feedback on these guidelines (laughs) that were again, mirroring the CDC. So it'll be interesting to see how responsive individual districts will be. And I think, again, that will depend a lot on geography and on where outbreaks have been. And and again, the overall kind of community fear, Mm -hmm. fear response to this. So I think that will 
that will vary. Um, but you're right. And in, in many cases, schools will be adopting at least some of these strict CDC guidelines for social distancing. And a lot of parents are going to have to really decide whether it's worth it for them. And I think that's yeah. why we are seeing this increase in homeschooling. I'm even seeing just on, um, you know, homeschool Facebook groups and other message boards, people who have no intention of long-term homeschooling, but are saying there's no way I'm going to send my child mm-hmm. to that environment this fall or whenever the schools reopen. Um, and, and I think, again, it gets to this larger um, um, embrace, perhaps, of alternatives to school or different kinds of education models. I wrote an article for Forbes recently where I talk about some of these new models that I think will emerge, including forest schools, forest preschools, outdoor kindergartens, yeah. those kinds of things that had already been picking up steam over the last half decade. And I think now we'll have uh, even more interest from parents yeah. who, who feel more comfortable with their kids outside. And there's already kind of- And kids space. need that. They need, they yeah. need exposure to yeah. nature just, just yeah. psychologically. So, so, what's, so regardless of what direction the schools end up going long-term, to me, it looks like um, schools and public schools in particular are going to be losing some chunk of their, mm. of their studentship. Um, and since they're paid per seat, per, per occupied seat, that means they're going to be losing a lot of funding. So what do you see as the, as the future, as the near-term future for, for public schools? Mm, That's a really great question. Um, I don't know, but I think my sense is that, that this will, this could lead at least again, temporarily Um, to a loosening or relaxing of compulsory schooling laws and truancy laws, for example. So I think what you might find, and obviously when I mentioned when Denmark reopened, you know, thousands of parents didn't send their kids to school and truant officers didn't come to their homes. Mm. The same thing happened in in this country in 1916 during the uh, polio epidemic in New York City Mm. when schools in New York City reopened one quarter of the parents didn't send their kids back to school. And of course, that was a disease that only affected children or mostly affected children significantly with severe consequences. And so um, that was even more understandable. But but that led at the time to kind of a loosening temporarily of compulsory schooling statutes, you know, really kind of looking the other way. And I have a feeling that that would be what would happen in a lot of places, not only parents that might be kind of opting for homeschooling, but in some cases, you know, you might have families, parent, uh, children, again, who live with vulnerable adults, particularly yeah. grandparents or other high-risk yeah. individuals who will opt to continue distance learning through the school. And I think that schools will respond to that. I think that that will be an option. Again, if you have these staggered schedules, you'll have situations where you have, um, you know, three days a week, one group is on site, and two day, those two days, the other group is at home learning. So I think there'll still be this, this blend of uh, in-person schooling and then home, you know, distance learning at home. Mm-hmm. And, and so, so my, my overall sense is that they might not, um, and they may even, you know, say to parents, look, you don't have to register as homeschoolers. We'll just, you know, sort of allow for these mm-hmm. flexible mm-hmm. schedules because you're right. If, if there were, you know, if there were this, um, exodus of parents who are then registering as homeschooling, that could 
um, that could lead to some funding problems for schools and then it potentially, you know, leads the school to kind of lose their um, influence over the students. And so I think that we'll see schools try to do whatever they can to retain students and families, um, but also acknowledging that they're going to have to be much more flexible as a result. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we're getting, we've actually gone past um, the 30-minute the mark. I try to keep these to around 30 minutes. Is there anything else that you want to say? Any other, any other sort of messages you want to get out there? Um, no, I think this is the final point. And again, I think parents are seeing all kinds of different ways of being educated. There's more of an appetite for education alternatives. And I think along uh, those same lines, you know, I'd encourage more policy support for things like education choice mechanisms, education savings accounts, and tax credit scholarship programs, and voucher programs that really enable families to have more uh, education options beyond an assigned district school so that they can have some more flexibility, they can be put back in charge of their child's education and find the right educational fit for each of their children. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, thank you so much for coming on. Um, and I'm sure I'll be wanting to talk to you again in the future. Oh, this was great, Brittany. Thanks again. Yeah, thank you.